Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this team sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yes. Welcome aboard John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Ready for another Saturday morning of a lot of stuff going on in Major League Baseball. I mean, you know, I could paraphrase the pennant races by saying there's a bunch of teams in it. There's a bunch of teams not in it. We could spend some time talking about the Dodgers and their run, their resurgence, the fact that they were running away with not only the National League West, but maybe the entire National League if they could catch up to the Pirates, who have been a great story themselves. you got the Braves in the National League East. Of course, you got the Reds and the Cardinals battling and seem to be the favorites to win the two wild card spots in the American League. Of course, you know that's where all the uh, races are. you got the American League East. You got the, is it going to be Boston? Is it going to be Tampa Bay? Baltimore, are they in it? Where are the Yankees? Are they done yet? You got the Central, of course, led by the Detroit Tigers, who look poised to win that division. The Indians and the Royals still in it. And then you go to the American League West, where it's now the Rangers and the Athletics battling in there. And really, you know, for the exception of any team that I mentioned, for the exception of maybe the Arizona Diamondbacks, just about all the other teams are done at this point. And, you know, we always see that team that goes on that ridiculous run. Look what the Dodgers did over the last couple months. Maybe a team could play to that potential or that level and maybe still be into things. But, you know, right now it's not really much going on other than those teams. And, you know, you could spend some time talking about the AL East race. You could talk about the AL wildcard race, the AL West, the NL wildcard race. Other than that, you don't really have much going on. you got probably more than more teams than not that are not in a race right now which will start with teams, surprising teams like Washington and Toronto and Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. But let's go through it for a second. Let's talk about what teams are not in it. And then you maybe could spend some time talking about teams that are in it because, you know, listen, you listen to shows and, you know, that's all we really talk about is what teams are in the race and what they have to do to stay in the race. And, and right now I'm going to run across each division and tell you exactly which teams are not in a race. And we'll start in the National League East, and there's four teams that are not in a race. Starting with the Washington Nationals, the New York Mets, the Philadelphia Phillies, and the Miami Marlins. You go over to the Central, we talked about the three teams that are in the race. How about the two that aren't? You got the Brewers and the Cubs. 
You go to the NL West and you want to say the Dodgers are favored to win the division and the Diamondbacks are somewhat in it. But the Padres, the Giants, and the Colorado Rockies are not. So that's 10 teams in the National League that are not in the pennant race right now. And that's something that you don't really see too often when it comes to this point of the year in August as we get in the middle of the month towards September. And you go into the American League, and yes, there's more teams that are in a race than there are in the National League. But if you want to say the Yankees are in it, the Blue Jays definitely aren't. The White Sox definitely aren't. The Minnesota Twins are not. The Mariners, the Angels, and of course the Houston Astros aren't. So that is 16 of the 30 teams in Major League Baseball that are not playing for a playoff spot come August 16th. And that's, that, that's saying a lot. It doesn't happen too often, but the teams that have been good in baseball have been very good. And you can even make a case that two teams, the New York Yankees and the Arizona Diamondbacks, are hanging on by a thread right now. A thread. I mean, all they need is another three, four-game losing streak, and they'll be done. They'll be with the other 16 teams that I just mentioned that aren't in a pennant race right now. But, of course, John Pielli, JohnPielli.com, bases empty blog, the whole thing. We get into some interesting topics every week to talk about things that other people don't talk about. And this is what this is what fascinates me about it because you get the breakdown I get the breakdown things that you know you may have heard a little bit about, you may have known something about. But you know once I throw an opinion out there, you could either agree or disagree with it. And once you disagree or agree, Tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. I'll be here during the duration of the program. My show plays Saturdays from 10 to 12, Saturday afternoons from 5 to 7, and you know we're working on trying to get another couple, another couple times to play during the week. But the key is, is that I'm there, and I've been going back and forth with people while the show is playing. And we want to talk a little bit about um, former Phillies and Angels manager Gene Mock. And Gene Mock... If you just remember, if you go back to the 80s or go back to the 70s or the 60s, which is probably a little more of Mock's time as a major league manager, you realize that this was the guy that really started the whole small ball thing. You know, I had written an article, and I didn't realize I only wrote two paragraphs when I was talking about Gene Mock last year. And really the gist of my article was the fact that this guy kind of originated small ball, whether you like it or not. He did a lot of double switches. He did a lot of, of uh, pitching changes in regards to certain batters. He hit and run. He was a he became in the 80s, once the stolen base became a bigger deal, he became a very big proponent of the stolen base. And he did a lot of different things to try to push the envelope to perhaps get his teams that may not have been as good as some of the top teams in a league to compete with the top teams in Major League Baseball. And it started with his time with the Philadelphia Phillies. And I'll tell you, he takes a lot of crap and a lot of heat for the 1964 Philadelphia Phillies season that cost the Phillies a chance to win the National League pennant. Of course, the main reason that people point to is him going to, to his two top pitchers, Jim Bunning and Chris Short, uh, you know, essentially one or two days rest throughout the last 10 games of the season, which the Phillies lost all of them and ended up with the St. Louis Cardinals winning the pennant instead of him. But that team would not have been in a race if it wasn't for Mock's style of managing, whether you like it or not. He had a lot to do with that team being as good as it was. Could you make a case that that team perhaps overachieved a little bit? Yeah. I mean, they, they didn't have the, the, the star power 
that that a lot of the other teams in the National League did at that point. You were talking, you know, whether it's the Dodgers, whether it's the Giants, whether it's uh, the St. Louis Cardinals who ended up winning the, winning the uh, league that year. But he kept them in it. And because of that, he obviously got some other managerial stints, whether it was with Montreal, whether it was with the Angels. And, you know, it, it, you know even with the Minnesota Twins, he ended up getting that team to compete when it probably shouldn't have. He was definitely known as an overmanager. I mean, you know, he was obviously the proponent, like I said, of small ball, the sacrifice bunt, which people hate. But he used, And he used the stolen base. He changed relief pitchers. He made a lot of defensive substitutions. Here's the one thing that I, you got to bring up about Gene Mock, which is very interesting, is the fact that he made his teams better. They got better during his tenure. He took over a Philadelphia Phillies team in 1961 that lost 107 games. And the Phillies ended up having one of their better runs until the 70s when they, uh, they finished from, what, 62 or 63 to 67. He led the team with a 500 or better record for every one of those seasons. He became the first manager in the history of the Montreal Expos in 1969. Team lost 110 games in his team's inaugural season. Not a surprise. Most expansion teams struggle. Most expansion teams aren't able to have the dearth of star power that the other teams have. And listen, the other teams are excited when there's an expansion team in the league because they know it's a team they're going to beat up on. But he got the team into a pennant race, a pretty serious pennant race in 1973. That's only four years later. The Mets, New York Mets, of course, won a division with 82 and 79 record. The Expos had a breakout season before they faded down the stretch. It got him major leagues manager of the year. And remember, that was at a time where the manager of the year wasn't chosen for each league. He left Montreal, went to Minnesota, winning seasons in three of his first four seasons. And remember those Twins teams, if you can. We're talking about 75, 76, 77, 78. Really outside of Arad Carew, who ended up leaving to go to the Angels, they, they lacked a lot of star power. And he, he was kind of, he started using the small ball tactics to get this team into a pennant race in 1977. And you, you'll look at how really bad on paper that Minnesota Twin team of 1977 was. And they were in it down to the last day with the Kansas City Royals, who ended up winning the, National, the American League Western Division. A lot was made about the fact that that team performed much better than it was, was thought to exist on paper. And, of course, he ends up joining the California Angels when he gets progressively better teams. There's no question you could, you could not deny that the California Angel teams that Gene Mock had in the 80s were very good. They were teams that were looking to win. 1981, he takes over the Angels his 22nd straight year that he was managed in a major league club. You know, he got the Angels to the postseason his first year, marking the first time the team had been to the postseason in their history. Now, in 1980, 1982, they lost a very tough series to the Milwaukee Brewers, one that they were favored to probably win. team won 93 games that year, lost to the Brewers who ended up going to the World Series. He was fired with, by, by owner Gene Autry. Autry regretted that decision almost immediately, and you know, while you know there was a little bit of a power struggle between the two, it, they agreed to bring Mock back for the 1985 season. He got them back in the postseason with the the division title in 1986. Of course, you remember everything that happened in 1986: the Red Sox ridiculous comeback, the Donnie Moore game. You know, obviously, our, our knocks probably on the reputation 
of a Gene Mock. And, you know, it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a shame because there's a guy that deserves credit for being a very good major league manager, a, a, a good, if you want to say interesting in-game manager, that's fine. But, but he was he was very innovative in a lot of the philosophies he put in. You could disagree with a lot of them. But I'll tell you, if you put him matched up against the job that a Billy Martin did in a similar time, and those guys obviously managed around the same time from the, the 60s to the, to the 80s, you could say that both of those both of those managers got the most out of the, the possible out of their teams, and I think he definitely deserves credit for that. And I think Gene Mock, you know, may not be a Hall of Fame manager, but he's a guy that you should remember in a positive light, in re, in regards to his place in baseball history. The Angels should remember him, and obviously he had some success with the Phillies. And you look at the history of Philadelphia Philly managers, and you know, I was on I was on another show talking about this the other day. The Phillies have had a history, particularly from the 70s on, to wanting to have managers in there with major league experience. And what did they do with Gene Mock in 1961? He was that rare occurrence, that rare example of a manager that was brought in with no experience at all. And his run with the Phillies was very good from 61 to 67. Like I said, the Phillies team, since they had the, uh, the 1950 team with the Wiz Kids, were not very good. They struggled mightily through the better part of the rest of the 50s and into the early 60s. And he got this team back to a point where it was competitive. They had winning seasons. Even though they didn't have the talent that some of the other teams had, he got that team playing to where they were very capable of. And in regards, and I'm going to kind of just put a uh, cap on this, by just mentioning the Philadelphia Phillies who may right now in 2013 going into 2014 hire a manager that doesn't have major league managerial experience. And if you start with Manuel, who of course managed the Cleveland Indians before he came to Philadelphia, Larry Boa had prior managerial experience before that. Terry Francona, one of two managers since 1982, where the Phillies hired with no major league managerial experience. Now, Francona, of course, had success later on with Boston and is now with Cleveland. Jim Fergosi had managerial experience when he took over the Phillies in 1991. Nick Leva had managerial experience when he took over in 1989. Lee Elia had major league managerial experience before he took over in 1987. Uh, John Felsky was uh, the other example of the guy who had no major league managerial experience before he took the job in 1985. Paul Owens, Pat Corrales. You know, you're looking, you know, you know, the one exception you make with Owens is he was a guy that was part of the front office for so long. So it was like he had experience running the team. So you put you put himself on the field. Uh, he doesn't really count as a guy with no experience whatsoever. But of course, Pat Corrales, who managed from 82 to 83, uh, was uh, was with the uh, Texas Rangers for a better part of the 70s. So the Phillies would be going in it kind of in a territory where they haven't gone before or at least in the last 15 years. Since Francona was the manager in 1997, now the good thing about the Phillies is, really outside of Gary Varsho as an interim manager, I don't count them as major league managers, especially if they're not retained for the next season. Uh, since you know 2001, Larry Bowen and Charlie Manuel have been the only managers of this team, and you know you talk about the great guys, the, you know the guys like the uh, Bobby Coxes, the Tony Larusas, who have that extra long managerial career. Uh, you know, for for a place like Philadelphia that hasn't had success until the mid 2000s, till 2005, 2006, 2007, they started to get it back together. You know, this is this is this is a very good step to have just a couple managers here. But 
you know, in regards to the Phillies, listen, I think you should respect what Gene Mock did as a manager. He did a phenomenal job. He did it his way. And that's the one thing that he would probably say to you. He's like, listen, you may not like me, but I did it my way. And he was, in fact, innovative in regards to Major League Baseball and its history. So John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of the day, be back with a lot more stuff going on. Passball Show, back after this. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call. 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. Listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTR Media. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. And you're listening to MTR Radio. A flipping out radio production. And you've got it. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We will offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over 5.5 million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, ready to knock out some solid baseball talk. Uh, I'm going to play my first interview today. It was recorded this past week with former Major League catcher Mike Lavalier. And Mike Lavalier, of course, came up through the Philadelphia Phillies organization, uh, made his first impact with the St. Louis Cardinals in the 84 and 85 seasons before being traded to the Pittsburgh Pirates in the Tony Pena trade. And a deal that looked like it was very beneficial to the St. Louis Cardinals at the time helped them initially as they made the postseason in 1987, losing in a World Series to the Minnesota Twins. But, you know, a couple fruits of that trade 
Mike Lavalier and Andy Van Slyke were integral parts of the Pittsburgh Pirate teams that won the National League Eastern Division from 1990 to 1992. Now, I do put a lot on myself in regards to knowledge and naming players and stats and stuff like that. So I, I do want to make sure that I get this right before I play the interview. Uh, we do talk about the game in 1992, the NLCS Game 7, Braves-Pirates. And I couldn't think of the first name of a catcher for the Braves that hit that uh, the base hit that scored Sid Bream to get the Braves into the World Series, Francisco Cabrera. And I thought about it afterwards. I do want to throw that in there. So once I fumble over his name, I, I named him Cabrera. I'm like, I couldn't remember his first name. I just wanted to throw that in there. But here it is, my interview with former Major League catcher Mike Lavalier. Enjoy. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League catcher Mike Lavalier. Mike, what's going on, buddy? Man, not so much, John. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Yeah, obviously you had a you had a chance to you know pretty long big league career spread across a couple different organizations, but you actually uh, started out in the Philly system. And what I find pretty interesting is you actually came up as a third baseman. Did your uh, conversion to catcher have anything to do with the guy that was playing third base for the Phillies? <laughs> well, I, I think it had more to do with my uh, lack of ability to be able to play third base at big league level. Um, obviously, they had uh, you know Mike uh, Mike Schmidt that was in Philadelphia, and I would say pretty well entrenched uh, there. And uh, you know, it was a situation where my skill set and what they were looking for as uh, third base offense production, uh, those two weren't going to meet. I uh, wasn't going to be able to uh, hit for power and deliver RBIs uh, like they expect uh, most third basemen to do. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And You ended up uh, going to catcher the same position your father played uh, in the minor leagues in the 50s and early 60s, right? Yeah, I, um, you know, they gave me a choice uh, going into uh, my first spring training in 1982. Uh, my uh, the scout assigned me, uh, you know, said, hey, Mike, I, I want you to go out and uh, get a catcher. I bet they're going to make you a catcher. And I asked them, you know, rather politely, you know, what, what, uh, what if I don't want to catch? And then he says, well, then uh, you can probably just stay home. Uh, so uh, <laughs> since I didn't have that uh, choice, I'd, uh, I figured, uh, well, I went and got myself a catcher's mitt and learned how to catch. Well, I'll tell you, what's very interesting about it, of course, I'm here with Mike Lavalier, is that you ended up becoming a very good defensive catcher. Uh, what, what, in, what in your mind or what did you feel that you needed to do to get yourself from a point where you put the catcher's mitt on for the first time and got yourself to being a legitimate catcher? Well, I think the most important thing is uh, uh, learning how to do things the right way. And I didn't have any bad habits to break. Uh, I see a lot of kids uh, that I've worked with in the past, uh, high school, college kids, that really have developed some poor habits. Uh, whenever I went to my first spring training, I was taught by uh, two guys, uh, P.J. Carey and Roly Diarmas, uh with the Phillies. And... Uh, those guys uh, taught me how to do it the right way, and then after once you learn the right way, then it's uh, it's about no shortcuts. It's a lot of hard work, and uh, you know just uh, you know staying after it, and knowing that it's a physically demanding position, but a very grateful position. 
Yeah, very true. And I tell you, you end up in a St. Louis Cardinals organization. You know, you make your day. You know, you, you, you're you're really first full chance to play a little bit in 1985. Um, you you know, you end up not making a postseason roster. But tell us a little bit about being part of the '85 Cardinals, the team that won the National League pennant. Well, I was. Uh, I get called up. Uh, Daryl Porter broke his toe. Uh, I think the second or third game of the year, and uh, so I get called up, and I was only up for 15 days while he was on the disabled list, and um, so I didn't get a chance to really uh, get a uh, you know a good idea of. Uh, you know, what took place in 85, uh, yeah, I was there in spring training with them, but, uh, you know, in just the 15 days. So, uh, you know, that was, that was part of it. I was disappointed because uh, I had such a poor offensive season um, in the AAA that year. And, uh, you know, just uh, white ears, I didn't feel like, you know, I could contribute to the team and, uh, you know, on, in uh, the offensive side of things. And, and I needed to work on that. Yeah, I'll tell you, one thing that Whitey Herzog is always been was always known for in his days with as the Cardinal manager is his uh, his willingness to carry three catchers. Did that uh, did that uh, stick in your mind at all as far as maybe thinking you might get a chance that season? Well, you know what, like I said, I, I was just uh, so poor offensively. Uh, I kept myself in uh, a couple of really bad habits that I couldn't uh, couldn't break out of, and uh, you know, I just think that uh, you know Whitey was to the point where he needed to, to take the 25 best guys and you know that was his choice um you know it wasn't like i wasn't trying to get back there it just uh, at the time i was incapable and needed to make an adjustment uh, adjustment offense on the offensive side yeah, and of course you end up uh, being traded in spring training in 1987 as part of that deal for uh, for Tony Pena. You and Andy Van Slyke come over along with pitcher Mike Dunn. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about that experience and what your thoughts were when you were moved from St. Louis to Pittsburgh. Well, initially, uh, I don't think anybody that's played in St. Louis really ever wants to leave St. Louis. Uh, such a great baseball town, and, uh, you know, I was uh, you know, very uh, happy there and uh, thrilled to death to be able to you know, return. And, uh, you know, last, uh, last week of spring training, I was traded. And, yeah, at the time, I went from a, you know, very good organization that had a lot of success to an organization that was really scuffling. Uh, they had lost uh, 100 games out of like four years in a row and um, you know, it was a situation where, you know, the the, uh, the, the Pittsburgh organization was just kind of in the dumps and, uh, you know, uh, you know I, would, I was obviously disappointed uh, until I got to Pittsburgh. And uh, once I got there and you know, met Jim Leland and my teammates, uh, things certainly changed. Yeah, and I tell you, I'm sure once you got there, you realized they kind of had a plan. And, you know, it didn't take long for you to kind of emerge on the scene. Of course, you spent a lot of time playing with uh, Junior Ortiz and uh, Don Slott as, a, you know, the catching tandems there. But, you know, 1987, you end up winning the gold glove. Well, I, uh, <laughs> to me, gold glove, uh, from the catcher's uh, standpoint, is a, uh, it's a team award. Uh, it's, uh, I consider my team, you know, the pitching staff, and I thought they were uh, absolutely fabulous at uh, holding runners on. Uh, they gave me a great chance to, to throw guys out, and, uh, you know, that's a lot of, of, of what's measured as a catcher for Gold Glove is your throwing out percentage, and, uh, you know, that, that has to be a two-man team. Um, the pitcher doesn't 
uh, delivery of the ball uh, in any, uh, uh, you know, good fashion, you know, and give you time, then, uh, you know, you're really not going to have a good percentage. I don't care how good you are defensively. So, you know, that is a, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, award that, you know, should have every guy on that staff, uh, as well as the pitching coach Ray Miller and uh, manager Jim Leland. Uh, everybody had a part in that in that award. Yeah, I tell you, they make a good point there. Once again, this is John Pialli. I'm here with former Major League catcher Mike Lavalier. Now, you obviously uh, stick around with Pittsburgh when they start winning. 1990, 91, and 92. They win the National League East. In your opinion, you know, what do you think was the, the, the biggest difference in that team kind of coming together over those three seasons? Well, I think, uh, you know, there was, uh, there was a lot of talent on that ball club. Uh, you know, uh, we had probably as good a team defense uh, as it was uh, in, the, in the league that year, uh, those years. Uh, a tremendous outfield. Uh, defense with Ponds being Spike, uh, Benilla, uh, infield defense, uh, anchored by Jay Bell and Jose Lean, uh, our pitching staff through strikes. We uh, would always uh, lead the league in you know, least amount of walks, uh, least amount of errors. I mean, it was just a uh, this tremendous uh, defensive team. And offensively, we could do a number of things. Uh, you know, we had some guys hit the ball ballpark. We had some decent team speed. And we had a, a bunch of unselfish guys uh, on that team that uh, would move runners over. Great situational uh, hitting, uh, you know, for that team uh, over that time. Yeah, and of course, you know, 1992, you end up, uh, you know, just as close as anything to uh, getting yourself into the World Series that year. And of course, you know, the Game Seven, the uh, the the hit by um, I forgot the guy's first name, Cabrera, ends up hit ends up hitting the uh, the base hit that scores Sid Bream. You, of course, were behind the plate that game. Tell tell take us a little bit about back to that day, and you know what you remember about that Game Seven in 1992. Well, John, I try not to remember any of it, to tell you the truth. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it was a great game. Uh, you know, the, uh, in my eyes, the wrong team won. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was a game that, that Doug Drabeck uh, pitched his heart out. Uh, you know, he gave us uh, every chance to win. And then in the ninth inning, there was a number of things that went wrong. Uh, you know, people like to point out the you know, blame Barry Bonds on the throw. Well, there were other things that happened during that inning that led up to, you know, the throw. And, uh, you know, it wasn't Barry's fault. Uh, you know, it was a team thing. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we couldn't get it done. Uh, the Braves were, uh, you know, they were, uh, you know, they kept after us. And, uh, you know, they were, they were a good ball club. And, uh, you know, they were deserved winners. Yeah, and of course they end up making you know making the World Series, dropping to the Toronto Blue Jays that year. Now you know after the '92 season, you end up believing you end up playing with the Chicago White Sox, and that's a team that you know going back to that season, I don't think a lot of people had them as far as being a favorite to win that division. You know, and obviously with the emergence of Jack McDowell and some other you know some other players on that team, uh, you know they ended up you know you guys ended up putting it together. Take us a little bit back to 1993 and you're, you're being part of that Chicago White Sox team. Well, uh, the uh, teams that I played for '93 and '94 White Sox were, well, I would say, uh, as good as teams as the Pirates and maybe even a touch stronger. Um, a little bit different. Uh, we didn't play quite as good of defense with the White Sox. Uh, 
that we had with the Pirates, but uh, offensively, uh, we had much more team speed, had more power. Uh, it was uh, offensively we could, uh, you know, again we could bash a little bit more uh, with other teams. Pitching uh, wise, was a different kind of pitching staff. It was more of a power staff um, that uh, guys that uh, you know could strike guys out. Uh, McDowell, Alex Fernandez, Jason Bray, Wilson Alvarez. Uh, you know, we had a great closer in Roberto Hernandez. Uh, tremendous bullpen, and you know, really looking back at it, then '93 and '94 teams were every bit as good, if not better, than our teams with the Pirates. Yeah, and you know what? The more I think about it, the more I, you know, you could tell that the talent was there, and it was good to see it kind of uh, come into fruition that year. Now, listen, Mike, I want to thank you for having some time today. I appreciate you being part of the program, and hopefully, we could stay in touch, and I could speak to you sometime in the near future. John, it was a pleasure. Thank you, and uh, good luck with your show. Uh, appreciate you calling. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview there with Mike Lavalier, former Major League catcher, obviously with the Pirates, Cardinals, a little bit with the White Sox and the Phillies as well. But I'll tell you one thing that just kind of brings you back to is as we got to towards the end, talking about the Sid Bream game, NLCS Game 7, 1992. Uh, i tell you one point that he makes that was the contrary was made, and a lot was made out of it, about, you know, the team kind of being together and the team, you know, having that type of chemistry. And, you know, there was a little bit of outrage, a little bit of negativity towards Barry Bonds in that game. And you remember the play where, uh, you know, Andy Van Slyke went on record. And, of course, Andy Van Slyke was traded with Michael Bayer to the Pirates in the Tony Pena trade. You know, Andy Van Slyke says that he told Bonds to move in. And Bonds refused to because he said he wasn't listening to, you know, Andy Van Slyke. Bonds referred to Van Slyke as the Great White Hope, uh, so there was obviously some animosity there, and you you know it begs it begs the question, you know, if Bonds was playing in a little bit on that base hit by Francisco Cabrera, you know, does he does he have a better chance of throwing out Bream at the plate? Remember, Sid Bream was not a fast runner by any stretch of the imagination. You're looking at a guy that was not a very fast runner. He was not known for his speed. Um, I, th- I think a good throw gets him, and Bonds did not make a bad throw whatsoever. And the criticism, you know, st- you know, stood there to say that, hey, if he was in a couple more steps, you know, he gets to the ball quicker, the ball gets to the plate quicker, and Bream's out. The game's tied to go to extra innings, and you never know what happens. Obviously, it's what makes baseball great. What happened, happened. You could you know, speculate on what you think could have happened all you want. But the bottom line, that's what happened. But listen, thanks for Mike for being part of the show today. We're going to take a break, um, finish up the first hour of the Pass Ball Show right here on EMTR Radio Network. Back after this. MTR Radio is already your home for the best sports talk in New York and Philly. Coming soon, the next leap in the evolution of internet radio will have you tuning in all day, every day. Close out your workday with Sean Bretherick and Dan Feuerstein from 3 to 5 p.m. Then when your teams are done for the day, David Dobin will be there to recap all the action from 10 to midnight. It all starts Monday, May 6th on MTR Radio, America's radio station. You're listening to MTR Radio. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. 
Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. In your face, all over the place. We're online, 24-7, You're listening to the hottest internet station, MTR. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hopefully you guys are enjoying what's going on here. We're going to finish up the first hour with some good baseball talk. And, you know, obviously with Bases Empty blog, JohnPielli.com, the whole thing, I get into a lot of different things going on, whether it's stuff that happened years ago or stuff that's happening now. But one of the things that I've gotten pretty passionate into is I've started to very slowly put together my list of players in Major League Baseball and Major League Baseball history that are not in the Hall of Fame that should be. And I've stated before, I've stated a million times, Gil Hodges belongs in the Hall of Fame. One guy that's on the ballot now that has no ties to steroids whatsoever that should be in the Hall of Fame and isn't getting enough consideration is former Tigers shortstop Alan Trammell. You've heard my thoughts on Al Oliver. Al Oliver, a guest on this show, and I'm not kissing his ass just because he was a guest on his show. Al Oliver, the way his career ended, 2,743 hits, when he clearly had something left and was unable to play because the owners didn't want him to, should be in the Hall of Fame. Another guy who I'm going to bring up in a possibility to be in the Hall of Fame is, is a longtime Major League catcher. He played 21 years in the Major League. And once I throw these stats at you, I want to preface it by saying that all the other catchers that are on this list that he is on, because I put him in there, are in Baseball's Hall of Fame. So amongst catchers that are in Baseball Hall of Fame, this is where this guy ranks. So he has 2,472 career hits, most amongst any catcher in Baseball's Hall of Fame. His 1,389 runs batted in are second amongst catchers that are in baseball's Hall of Fame, and he's not. 248 career home runs, fifth amongst baseball's catchers in the Hall of Fame. Tied for fifth with his 285 career average amongst catchers in baseball's Hall of Fame. I will add to that that guys like Bill Dickey, Mickey Cochran, um, Ernie Lombardi, and Gabby Harnett played in more of an offensive era and were, you know, in a time where catchers did hit for a higher average. You know, and this guy had a higher career batting average than Gary Carter, higher batting average for his career than Carlton Fisk, than Johnny Bench, and several other catchers that get a lot more credit. And the guy that I'm talking about is Ted Simmons. Ted Simmons, of course, started his career a pretty long time with the St. Louis Cardinals, finished it off with the Milwaukee Brewers, and put up numbers, let's be honest. He finished his career in Atlanta with the Braves as kind of a, of, of a, uh, a platoon type of guy, but 
he really did put up these numbers. 2,472 hits for a catcher is nothing to be ashamed of. 1,389 RBIs. Only Yogi Berra had more RBIs amongst catchers in Baseball Hall of Fame. So that means he had more RBIs than Johnny Bench. He had more RBIs than Carlton Fisk, than Gary Carter, and then some of the other guys, Gabby Harnett, Ernie Lombardi, Bill Dickey. Only Yogi Berra had more RBIs than Ted Simmons finished with in his career. And obviously Mike Piazza is a guy that should be in the conversation. You know about his power numbers and where he ended up ranking. But when we're in this era where we want to penalize as many of the contemporary players as possible, it's very easy to lose track of a, of a guy that played before and probably deserves to be in the discussion. Ted Simmons had a phenomenal career, was a, was a switch-hitting catcher, which you didn't see too many of them. Obviously, Barrow was one, but you know, not, there weren't too many successful switch-hitting catchers in the history of baseball. And he, and he may have been a little bit of a compiler, but you even take out the last three seasons with Atlanta, he was a top-hitting catcher in all of Major League Baseball. And obviously played in the same era as Carter and Fisk and mostly with Johnny Bench. So he was overshadowed by those guys. But now as you look, you see what's happened. You know, there aren't offensive catchers that aren't named Mike Piazza that are passing him. And I think it's very interesting to look at because, you, you know, you could talk about guys like Ivan Rodriguez and you could talk about other guys that could potentially be in the Hall of Fame. I, I want to see Ted Simmons amongst the discussion with these other players. And you know about Simmons, obviously he had his, his run, his 15 years of eligibility, and you end up seeing what happened. That, you know he, He's got to be inter- introduced by the Veterans Committee. And I've said it before, there's guys that belong in there. Ted Simmons is added to the list of Al Oliver, Gil Hodges, and Alan Trammell. They should be in baseball's Hall of Fame. If you agree with me, disagree with me, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. I'll be here talking, you know, just about anything you want to um, throughout the rest of the program. Another interesting thing that I got into, and I'm going to keep this one real short because it's obviously not a big story, but there was an infielder for the Chicago White Sox and Cleveland Indians by the name of Carlos Martinez, who, you know, passed away pretty early at the age 48 of of the AIDS virus. And, you know, he had a couple of moments in baseball history that, you know, probably people don't really get into. And first of all, you hear Carlos Martinez, you think of two Carlos Martinez's that probably aren't him. One of the Cardinals' top pitching prospects, his name's Carlos Martinez. There's a pitcher for the Marlins that pitched in 2006, 2007, and 2009 that also had the same name. But the Carlos Martinez I'm talking about, you know, passed away on January 14, 2006, from uh, symptoms of AIDS. He signed as an amateur free agent in 1983 by the New York Yankees. Another minor league player, Bill Lindsay and him, went over to the White Sox in a deal that got the Yankees Wayne Tolleson, Joel Skinner, and Ron Kittle. He made his major league debut in 1988, and he he became the most frequently used Chicago White Sox third baseman. What's interesting about that, Robin Ventura took over in 1990. He ended up in, you know, a year later playing more games than any White Sox first baseman keeping the seat warm for Frank Thomas. And, of course, he became a free agent at, at, after 19, you know, at, before 1991, joined the Cleveland Indians. He had a two-home run game against Ron Darling in uh, 1992 and, of course, has his unintentional claim to fame on May 26, 1993, when he had a home run against the Texas Rangers. 
a municipal stadium in Cleveland. Martinez was the guy to hit a long fly ball to right field with Texas Rangers right fielder Jose Canseco backing up and backing up. He sees it. He sees it. The ball comes down. Boom. It bounced off his head and over the wall for a home run. So it was Carlos Martinez that hit that ball and, you know, rest in peace. You know, over seven years ago now, he's, he's, he's been gone from us all together. But just to finish up things going on in the hour, I talked a little bit in Bases Empty blog about longtime Cincinnati Reds outfielder Veda Pinson. And Veda Pinson had a very good career for the Cincinnati Reds, was probably one of their best players when they weren't very good through the better part of the, the late 50s and early 60s. Of course, what stands out is Pinson's presence on the 1961 Cincinnati Red team that won the National League pennant before losing to the New York Yankees. Joey Jay was the emerging star pitcher. Veda Pinson, you know, along with Frank Robinson, were probably the best uh, position players in, in regards to that team. But, you know, you look at really, he burst on the scene in 1959, a solid combination of power, speed, and defense. And if it wasn't for the emergence of San Francisco Giants slugger and future Hall of Famer Willie McCovey, Pinson would have certainly gotten more consideration for the award, the Rookie of the Year award. He had 316, 20 home runs, 84 RBIs, led the league in doubles with 47, runs scored 131, at-bats with 648, and played appearances with 706. You know, he, he, would, he would end up leading the National League in doubles, played appearances at-bats in 1960 as well. And, uh, you know, a year later, led the, the, the league in hits when the Reds made it to, you know, to, the, to the World Series against the Yankees. He would drive in over 100 runs the next two seasons and led the National League in games played hits and triples in 1962. After four more solid seasons, he had a down year in 68. Remember, the Reds, one of their MOs of that time was to get something for their better players before they got out of their prime. That led to the trade of Frank Robinson. And, you know, it didn't last too long into the big red machine, which, of course, started in the 70s. But Veda Pinson was one of the victims of it. He was traded to the St. Louis Cardinals for the 1969 season. He drove in 70 runs, 82 a year later for the Cleveland Indians in 1970. And then he finished his career with the Indians in 70-71, Angels in 72-73, the Royals in 74 and 75. First career from 1958 to 1975, Pinson hit. 286, 256 homers, 1,170 runs batted in, with 485 doubles, 127 triples, and 305 stolen bases. His 2,757 hits are the most for a player who is not in Baseball Hall of Fame. The exceptions, of course, are the players who have more hits and are still eligible to be voted in by the Baseball's Writers Association of America and, obviously, Pete Rose, who is not eligible. I, I wouldn't object to Veda Pinson being in the Hall of Fame. But I think if you look at his dominance in the entire league, he played at a time where there were a lot of big-time players. And I wouldn't put him in the same category as a Frank Robinson or a Mays or an Aaron or other guys like that that were certainly dominant at that same time. And I think that's something that has to be held against Pinson. And it's unfortunate because he had a very good career. And like I said about Al Oliver, you know, you, you really get that many hits you should at least get a strong consideration in regards to the Hall of Fame. But what I do think is very interesting is that Pinson played either 10 years earlier, the 40s into the 50s, or the 80s into the 90s, he would have stood out more because his numbers were very good. 
here's where he deserves to be honored. And if I'm the Cincinnati Reds, you have to be kicking yourself for not honoring this guy. This guy should have his number 28 retired by the Reds. As a ready, at 297 with 1,887 hits, 978 runs scored, 814 RBIs, they're all amongst the leaders in, uh, in all-time Cincinnati Red offensive categories. He belongs in a discussion with the great Reds outfielders. You know, when we talk about Robinson, we talk about Tony Perez and Pete Rose and Ted Klazuski. And he played 11 seasons with the team. And he should have been honored before he passed away in 1995. When he died in 1995, he had one year left of Hall of Fame eligibility. He got a little bit of a push, but unfortunately never saw more than about, if I'm not mistaken, about 15% of the ballot, which doesn't do him justice, but he does deserve to be honored by the Cincinnati Reds, and hopefully they consider you know, giving him the credit that he deserves in regard to being honored by the Cincinnati Reds. You know, get his family there, get the, you know, get a get a little celebration for him. Put up his number 28, and you know, a guy like Chris Heisey, who's currently wearing that same number for the Reds, would gladly relinquish in honor of one of the greats for the Cincinnati Reds, and that's Veda Pinson. And he, he doesn't get a lot of credit. You don't discuss him amongst the best players of his time. And unfortunately, there were a lot of players like Veda Pinson that put up really good numbers that, you know, deserve more credit than they end up getting. And, you know, it's a shame. But I, I think, you know, in regards to some of the other guys I mentioned before, Trammell, because he, he is so close to what Barry Larkin did, Ted Simmons, because where he ranks amongst the catchers, Al Oliver, because of his dominance as a player and the fact that his career was taken out from under him by something that wasn't an injury. It was collusion. MLB collusion took Al Oliver out of the game when he certainly had something left. He could have been a Paul Molitor for the next five or so seasons. He was not given that opportunity. He belongs in the Hall of Fame. And why doesn't Gil Hodges belong? Why is Gil Hodges not in the Hall of Fame? He was one of the power-hitting first basements of his time. When he played, there was not there were few National League first basemen that hit for as much power as he did. He finished with a tremendous career. And his 361 home runs meant a lot more back then when he retired than they would right now. And that's the unfortunate thing in regards to Gil Hodges because we talk about, you know, the numbers that have been put up since, all the power numbers, whether they're artificially in, in, enhanced or not, they're still up there. And 361 home runs does not pull as much weight as it did in the 1950s and the 1960s. But Gil Hodges was one of the best first basemen to ever play this game, offensively and defensively. Was a, uh, was one of the best players on those Dodger teams that, of course, made the World Series all those years, winning the World Series in 1955. And him along with Duke Schneider and guys like that, you know, Roy Campanella, Jackie Robinson, the other guys are all honored. And you're waiting for a guy like Gil Hodges to get his opportunity to get into the Hall of Fame. But, you know, in regards to Veda Pinson, I think he's a guy that, in my opinion, falls a little bit short, but definitely deserves his day in Cincinnati where he should clearly be honored. A couple things I want to touch up before I finish off the first hour here. Justin Morneau is uh, on revocable waivers right now, the Minnesota Twins first baseman. Obviously, you would know the Twins would have some interest in moving him before uh, you know before he ends up becoming a free agent after the season. It's interesting to see how that works and what type of teams would jump in and maybe claim a Justin Morneau. If he doesn't get claimed, of course, he becomes a uh, you know a guy that could be traded with, without any approval needed. So, But one thing, Justin Morneau, a 10-5 guy, can veto any trade. I think that's something interesting that has to be looked at. 
And, uh, you know, it's interesting to see. Is there a team that would go out there and get a Justin Morneau for the next two months of this season? You know, a team like, let's say, the Pirates, who could use a first baseman. I'd love to see him there because I think he makes that team that much better. But, you know, would the Pirates be willing to part with what it would take to get a Justin Morneau? And let's be honest, in regards to contenders, maybe the Oakland Athletics, a possibility. But, you know, Billy Bean's very, very shrewd in regards to the moving of young players. Tampa Bay can use any power that it can get. I know Will Myers has played well. I know they got James Loney playing there at first base as we speak. But, you know, obviously Tampa Bay can use some offense if they want to use a tandem of perhaps a Loney slash Morneau DH first base type of thing. That would definitely work. In my opinion, there's enough uh, of an interest out there where it would make sense for the Minnesota Twins to consider the offers that they could get for Justin Morneau. Look at where the Twins are at right now. This is a team that's played a little better than people have thought. I think you have to give a lot of credit to manager Ron Gardenhire, who continues to, to put the team in a position to win, regardless of what crap it has on its own field. I mean, this is a team that's been dealt a couple bad blows over the last couple seasons. Their farm system has certainly diminished. A lot of the younger players that they've expected to come out there and perform have not, and Ron Gardenhire is left there to pick up, pick up the pieces. And he's done a, a, as good of a job as you could imagine in, in regards to a team that is not getting to where it needs to go. And you know, does Ron Gardenhire come back next year? I think you absolutely got to bring him back. You know, the team sits there only 10 games under 500. And if you look at the talent that's on that Minnesota Twin team, it, you got you got to give the manager credit for that team holding off where it is. I mean, 10 games under 500, uh, you know, you know, is something that has to be commended. You know, this is a guy that, you know, you got Joe Maurer who's putting up Joe Maurer numbers, of course. You know, he's going to drive in runs and hit home runs. Morneau's been healthy, but Brian Dozier's been your regular second baseman. Pedro Florimone's been your regular shortstop. Trevor Plouffe has been your regular third baseman. Josh Willingham's hitting 215. Aaron Hicks is hitting 192. And your combination of Chris Parmalee, Cleet Thomas, Oswaldo Arcia are just not cutting it at this point. And, you know, you're, you're looking at a team that, yes, they do got Byron Buxton, the guy that they drafted with the number two overall pick in the draft a couple years ago. He's, he's, he's supposed to be the real deal. He's supposed to be a difference maker. But the Twins have overperformed. They've done a better job than people would have thought. And it kind of makes you just realize that a, that a manager sometimes does make a difference. And I, it's been kind of contrary to what I've said before. I, I've said this a lot of times. I've said, you know, I, I disagree with the importance that people put on a major league manager. They make it out like it's the biggest difference maker in the world. Only in some cases it makes that much of a difference. Only when you have the manager that can get a team together and a team to perform when the team stinks. And there are very few of those guys. And I think we put too many managers in that category that we think are just that simple that if they were in charge of the team, all of a sudden it, that things would be all right. All of a sudden, these, t these players that aren't very good will overperform. And, and it's, it's the very high echelon of manager. The top 2% of Major League Baseball managers have the ability to get a team that's not very good to play like a team that is good. And, and that's my point in regards to management. I think it's an overrated thing. You, you, you got to work on the players. Get some better players and then worry about who's managing them. And for the Minnesota Twins, a guy like Ron Gardenhire deserves to have a contract and deserves to be the Minnesota Twins manager until he doesn't want to manage anymore. So I do want to thank Mike Lavalier for being part of the first hour of the program. we got another solid hour. Lots more things going on. I'm going to speak with former Major League pitcher Dave LaRoche. 
as well as uh, former minor league infielder Mike Lumley in the second hour back after this.